Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today my guest is Dr. Eldad Brim. Eldad just got his PhD during the pandemic, which I think is a great achievement from the University of Haifa, and his work is about the geopolitics of Jerusalem in the 20th century. But Eldad is also a tourist guide, Uh, and today we're going to talk about uh, not just Jerusalem, its history, particularly the airport, who is an expert of. Uh, but we're also going to talk about uh, tours in Jerusalem. We're going to look at uh, locations, places, and who are the people going around the city. Eldad, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. First question, which is the same one I asked to all of my guests. Eldad, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? Well, on the most basic level, it's my address. It's the city I was born in and the only city I've ever lived in, apart from two years in the States as a young kid, this is the only city I've ever lived in and the only city I know, uh, at least intimately. Uh, But it goes deeper than that. Uh, Jerusalem is not only my address, it's my vocation. You can say that my life revolves around the city. It's the city that I studied and the city that I convey to others through tours and through my scholarship. Uh, I wrote my PhD about a certain aspect of uh, modern Jerusalem history. I spend most of my time in the city and uh, most of my friends and family are here. Um, You know, on my father's side, um, I'm fourth generation in Jerusalem. Um, My grandfather was an architect and an engineer who designed many listed buildings in British mandate period. Um, his brothers were also engineers and architects, so you can say that at least on my father's side, my identity is embedded into the fabric of the city. So it's more than just a collection of houses and neighborhoods and streets. It's uh, 
a very big part of my identity for better and worse. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, can I bring you back to a question of your of your family? You just mentioned your your father, your uncle, if I understand correctly, they were engineers. So I was wondering what kind of buildings they engaged with. Well, this is interesting. My great grandfather um, had 10 children and they were living in Budapest in Hungary. And they wanted to make Aliyah to emigrate to what was then uh, British uh, mandate Palestine, even before uh, World War I. Uh, but then the war broke out and they remained in Budapest. They came only after the war when the British started the, the British mandate. Um, and they became, you know, laborers at first, but then they became professional builders, engineers, architects, some of them, not all of them. One of them was my grandfather, and he designed many residential and commercial buildings around the city. Some of them, as I mentioned, are listed buildings for preservation, especially in Rechavia, some in Katamon downtown, and some of the Haredi ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, um, the big yeshiva, the big religious seminary on the Sh Shabbat Square at Big Junction uh, in Masharim. Um, and other buildings. He was uh, also part of the team that worked on the design of St. Andrew's, the Scottish Presbyterian Church, um, alongside his uh, brother, uh, a great contractor and engineer himself. They worked on the Barclays Bank that later became the Jerusalem Municipality Building. They designed it and built it. As laborers, they rebuilt the tower of the Augusta Victoria after it collapsed in the earthquake of 1927. They supplied marble to the King David Hotel, the YMCA. They even partook in the, um, the refurbishment or the renovation of the Al-Aqsa Mosque after the damage that was caused to it in the 1927 earthquake. So really in many parts of the city, uh, in many buildings, uh, um, my family has a, a stake, you can say. And um, it makes me proud. What you just said, uh, uh, it's um, unbelievable uh, in terms of the connections with the work of many, not just scholars, but other individuals who are starting the city. Like there is a new project uh, running uh, in Manchester, uh, in Liverpool, apologies, uh, at the moment on the 1927 earthquake. So again, you can see the connections here, uh, but also with, uh, with materials and buildings, um, looking at who were the people buildings, where the material came from. So it's fascinating eventually to put faces and names uh, upon you know, the people that actually built uh, that modern Jerusalem. I want to ask you something just because it came to my mind right now. Um, good friend of mine, scholar, very famous scholar indeed, Yair Wallach, just wrote a book about Jerusalem in the late 19th century and moving into the early 20th century. And in a number of interviews, he suggested that the British essentially demodernized Jerusalem. By the beginning of the 20th century moving forwards, there were more newer buildings in Jerusalem than in New York as a result of uh, late Ottoman constructions and then later on under, under the British. But then the British themselves sort of demodernized because they took away a lot of features like not allowing a, a tram to be developed, uh, sort of uh, sanctifying the particularly the old city. I was wondering if you ever, you know, maybe in your family, if you ever looked at this kind of dichotomy, like modernization of a city, but at the same time, try to keep it uh, like this sacred place. And I, and I wonder also in your work as a tourist guide, if you ever feel this kind of a battle between the modern and the past. 
Well, it is true. You know, we joke, we say that the 20th century in Jerusalem began in December of 1917 when the British arrived and they, they actually modernized the city. They built very little uh, on their own, but they uh, regulated construction and put it all in a legal framework and uh, urban planning. They, they came up with five master plans for the city, uh, which is pretty amazing. Over uh, the span of 31 years, they came up with five plans. Um, since independence, we have only had one uh, plan or two plans for the city. So they're, what they managed to do is, is, is remarkable. Um, I, I don't agree with the, with, the, with the claim that they demodernized the city. Well, they canceled the tram. I don't know if the tram would have happened anyway. Um, for other reasons. They turned Jerusalem into a modern city um, in terms of, of, of law enforcement, in terms of infrastructure, roads, water supply. They brought water. Water came to Jerusalem for the first time, not by gravity, uh, under the British. Uh, the same goes for electricity and other utilities. So well, I think it's really unfair towards the British to say that they demodernized the city. Um, the city became the city we know, really, under the British. It is true that under the Turks in the late Ottoman period, the great European edifices were built, the great monasteries and churches, uh, but that doesn't denote, in and of itself, that doesn't denote uh, modernization. Um, I do think that the British, if it wasn't for the British, we would still be a very much more primitive city than we uh, eventually became. This is a certainly very interesting debate. I mean, uh, obviously, um, the, the question also the, the sort of a colonial aspects in how the British rule. And as you mentioned, I think this is an important point. The fact that they introduce all of these rules and regulations and the various legal systems, uh, and yet the buildings were a local product. I mean, Arabs and Jews uh, with their own architecture, own ideas, uh, uh, and possibilities in, in building the city. So again, uh, it, it's very interesting to see how the city massively developed, certainly from the 1920s onwards. But uh, I, I will brings... tell you this, Roberto, uh, it is true that the British were against the industrialization of Jerusalem. That much is true. And they also tried not to allow for very tall buildings, which is still an ongoing debate in the city. Um, and the most important thing, they came up with this uh, regulation or rule um, that every building has to be built out of stone, or at least covered in stone. And that, you know, that it really is a demodernization of the feature of the city, of, of the, the visual aspect of the city, because it's very, we keep to this very traditional building material. And it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big debate and argument until today. Should we do away with the stone regulation because it's very expensive to build like this? It takes longer. It does give the city a certain appeal and a certain look. Uh, do we want to keep that look and appeal? That's an ongoing debate. Yeah, that was like uh, one aspect of my own work when I was looking at uh, the early years of Ronald Storrs as governor of Jerusalem. Lots of people, independently from their ethnic affiliations, religious beliefs, you know, Arabs and Jews asking to build stuff with uh, either corrugated iron or other materials. But the rule was that it must be the white stone of Jerusalem, which was massively expensive, much more complicated to build. And in a sense, as you said, eventually that gave the character uh, and the color of Jerusalem, because it's something that everybody driving uh, it doesn't matter which direction, but you drive into the city and then all of a sudden you, you get to see all of this white. Uh, 
uh, and obviously that's the results of uh, uh, basically urban planning. I mean, that's, uh, that's not an accident. Let me ask something about your PhD. So you're talking, in your work, you're talking about geopolitics of Jerusalem in the 20th century. Um, since you just finished, I mean, I'd be very happy to hear just uh, a summary of your work. I'm very curious about it. Well, the geopolitics of Jerusalem is a very big headline. Uh, it was much more uh, concise than that. Um, I was looking into those 19 years when Jerusalem was divided, between 1948 and 1967. And surprisingly, not much scholarly work on a PhD level was, was done on Jerusalem in this period. I mean, I came across one PhD dissertation that was written as far back as 1973, the year I was born. So of course there was a, a great um, a gap um, and, and a great shortage of, of knowledge about those 19 years, which were crucial to the development of both sides of the city. I was looking uh, into the Israeli side and specifically I was looking into how the city recovered the trauma of the 1948 war, how it was repopulated with thousands, tens of thousands of, of new residents and the debate around that. Should we push more people into the city? Should we bring them there? Where should we place them in the city, um, you know, in a concentrated fashion or dispersed all over the urban area? It was a very great debate. And specifically, I was looking into the four stages um, during which the residents of the city, veteran and you, were housed. So first, they were housed in the uh, former Palestinian neighborhoods, uh, namely Katamon, Talbiya, Musra, and so on. The houses were there, some of them were fully furnished, and they were just entering these houses, um, the new immigrants that came to the city and government clerks. And uh, when that was done, when uh, those were, you know, running out, um, you know, five Palestinian villages were annexed to the city. Shahbader, uh, Lifta, Malcha, and Karim, Dil Yassin, and uh, one half of, a, a, of another village, Beit Zapafa. Um, so into those villages, apart from Beit Zapafa, those villages were also deserted, and uh, other immigrants settled in those villages. And that was a big challenge and not always a success. In the third stage, they had to build from scratch. All the houses that were already there were filled up. And for the first time, they built from the ground up. They built transit camps. We're talking about horrible places. You mentioned this before, um, where tents and shacks, very crowded, very poor, uh, undeveloped, underdeveloped, um, uh, hotbeds of, of, of political uh, protest and resent and antagonism towards the state. So they set up a few of those camps. Um, actually, in my research, I discovered two more that actually no one knew about. And uh, I found archival material about them. Um, and those were, in the end, um, you know, taken apart. In 1950, they started to build real houses, permanent housing in uh, new neighborhoods all over the city. And that great construction movement from 1950 until 1967 really shaped the geography of what we now know as West Jerusalem, this whole draw towards the south and to the west that was unheard of until 1948. Suddenly the city expanded in all directions uh, but especially to the south and to the west where there was available land and relatively far from the Jordanian border. So I was looking into how we got the city that was there on the eve of the 1967 war. It's layout, it's neighborhoods, it's, um, you can say, um, social or, or demographic um, cityscape. 
or the imprint on the city of the new neighborhoods and the way that the Palestinian neighborhoods were, were housed, were, I'm, I'm sorry, settled again with new immigrants. How we got the residential map on the eve of the 1967 war, which was the tipping point after which everything changed again, of course. So that was what I was looking into. Yeah. Well, I hope it's going to be a book soon because, uh, as you mentioned, there is not much written about Jerusalem, whether Israeli or Jordanian Jerusalem between 48 and 67. And this is a massive gap. And unfortunately, now with the fact that the Jerusalem archives, the, the archives of the Jerusalem municipality are going to be moved and likely not to be made accessible, it's going to become even more uh, complicated and hard to to write that that missing history. Uh, and you're right. I mean, this is like a, a crucial period. And, and, and I still have to find an answer to why historians did not engage in both sides, the East and the West, because the gap is equivalent. Uh, and it's not, I think, an issue of sources. I think it's more the question of a divided city and how do you discuss that essentially so well the, well the fact that it was a divided city only makes it more intriguing and more interesting and yet uh only little scholarly work was done about this i mean uh articles were written and, and a book came out from the bensky institute about uh almost 30 years ago now chapters about uh jerusalem and those west jerusalem in those years and also about jordanian jerusalem but all in all not much was written um I, I think I know why, because, you know, when you look in a city which is so old and, and had such romantic periods in its history, like the Crusaders or the Mamluks or even the Ottoman Empire, and, uh, to say nothing about biblical Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem, these, would, these are periods that really ignite the imagination and, and spark your curiosity. Whereas those 19 years when the city was divided, I'm talking about living memory. I was born after, but my parents, their generation, they all remember those years. It was a small city. It was struggling. And above all, it was gray. It was bureaucratic. It was a government city. Not much was going on. It was really a struggling peripheral city. And that doesn't really ignite any scholarly desire to look into it. So it was uncharted waters in a way. And I dipped into these waters. On the Jordanian side, there is almost nothing written. Of course, there is the landmark book by Dr. Kimberly, Kimberly Katz that uh, you hosted on one of your chapters, a very interesting chapter indeed. Um, and she wrote about this and she's writing more. I know there's another book now being written on Jordanian Jerusalem and the man who's writing it um, is, is complaining. We're talking, he's complaining. There's very little to go by. Um, hardly you know, personal accounts of people who used to live here, decision makers, very little was written or preserved and you know, very little with which to work. And that's, that is very, very frustrating indeed because also on the Jordanian side, these were crucial years to the development of that part of the city. Yeah, certainly the old city uh, saw some development changes throughout the Jordanian era, but they are forgotten in a sense because again, there's no much writing about it and even sources are, are hard to, to be found. Let me take you to another area of expertise. So you recently sent an article, which will be published soon, about the uh, Jerusalem airport. The very first episode of this podcast saw Professor Salim Tamari talking about his childhood. And uh, among his memories, there was this uh, 
drive with his father from Ramallah to uh, the old city of Jerusalem, passing by the airport. And uh, he remembered the fascination looking at these planes, landing and departing, taking people in, taking people out to visit exotic destinations. Nowadays, there's not much left of what may uh, have become the airport uh, in Palestine. Today, basically, there's only like a shade of, of the infrastructure that was meant to become. And also the history of that place has kind of been forgotten and neglected. So can you tell us something about uh, this airport? What, what's the history behind the airport and how did it work? And how eventually it was uh, dismissed? You know, it's a fascinating story that I came across purely by chance. I was asked a couple of years ago to contribute a chapter, a walking tour, an itinerary for a walking tour of downtown Jordanian Jerusalem, Salahuddin Street, Baba Zahara, that area. And I looked into old photographs. Um, I'm not sure you came across the name of Apo, Apo bin Lian, who is an Armenian tour guide. And somehow he managed to amass and collate a great collection of black and white um, photographs of Jordanian Jerusalem, everyday scenes from the area of Salahuddin Street and the old city and all that area. And I was looking into these photographs uh, trying to come up with uh, interesting uh, places for my tour. And I couldn't help but notice uh, how many uh, travel agencies there were. And some had signs for various airlines that they were uh, representing in the city. Western Airlines and Arab Airlines, and that got me thinking. And I started looking into the history of the airport and very little was written. There was a great article in the Jerusalem Quarterly by Nahid Awad a few years ago. Uh, but other than that, very little was written indeed. It was, you know, piecing together small bits of information from, from here and there. Um, and I managed to come across, well, I managed to author the, the, uh, the history of the city, uh, I'm sorry, of the airport uh, in its golden years, the golden age from 48 to 67. Um, you know, the airport started in 1925. There's a British military, mostly military airstrip. Uh, about 10 kilometers north of Jerusalem. But right after the 1948 war, when it came under Jordanian control, uh, it was very important for King Abdullah to operate that airport and to bring tourists and pilgrims to earn legitimacy for his rule over the West Bank, which was not officially recognized almost by any country in the world. And I was amazed to discover that um, as late as, I mean, as early as uh, early 1949, flights started from that little airstrip to Amman, which is a very short flight. But by August 1949, and this is truly amazing, regular flights started to go from Jerusalem to Damascus. But that was only the beginning. Um, and by 1967, over the years, some 15 different airlines, mostly Arab airlines, served that airport. It officially opened as the Jerusalem airport in May 1950. And the terminal building that we know uh, was built in 1955 or 56. The Jordanians tarmacked the runway and they had it extended once. They were about to extend it twice uh, on the second time, but the 1967 war interrupted. But over the years, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pilgrims, um, Muslim and Christian, and everyday tourists, used that airport. It was the main entry point into Jerusalem and into Jordan in general. It was just another international airport, one more in Jordan, in Amman. 
Uh, in the mid-1960s, it saw half as many passengers as the Jerusalem airport. So it was the main entry point into Jordan in general. And we're talking about 15 different Arab airlines and at least one Cypriot airline. We're talking about destinations that extended from Rome. You could fly to Rome from Jerusalem, which was, I, I was amazed to find out. Um, destinations across the Middle East, uh, the Persian Gulf, and even Central Asia. I came across a report from the early 1950s, according to which there were flights from Jerusalem to Afghanistan, to Kabul, and to Kandahar. Uh, I, I, was, I was amazed to find this out. I don't know if it was a regular service or not, but um, we're talking about 16 weekly flights, 16 weekly flights, more than twice a day, you could go from Jerusalem to Beirut. Many flights to Cairo, Damascus, Baghdad, Doha in Qatar, Manama, Bahrain, Jeddah, Dahran in Saudi Arabia, Abadan in Iran. Um, of course, a few domestic destinations within uh, Jordan itself, uh, Aqaba, Amman, Ma'an, if you wanted to go to Petra, uh, Nicosia in Cyprus, and so on and so forth. And this, this was a crucial link between Jerusalem and the rest of the world. Not for everyone, but for the elite. Um, Kuwait, Kuwait City, um, where many Palestinians used to work uh, as technicians, doctors, teachers, what have you. And it was really fascinating to find this out because you know some scholars would tell you that the airport only became international in 1965. Well, I found out it, was, it became international as early as 1949. And I was surprised to see just how many people used it and how many people uh, came through. And it was really, if you zoom out, uh, the one insight that comes from this story, Jerusalem used to be a part of the world, especially the Arab world. You could go directly from Jerusalem to various destinations around the Middle East, Persian Gulf. Today, Jerusalem is hardly part of the West Bank with the separation wall built around it. So uh, it's like evolution in reverse. It would be from a, from a small but very cosmopolitan city, it became a big but rather peripheral and provincial city today. It's, it's a fascinating story and you cannot disconnect the story of the airport from the tourism boom in what was Jordanian uh, downtown of Jordanian Jerusalem. We're talking about dozens of hotels, dozens of travel agencies, uh, money changers, restaurants, souvenir shops. Um, of course, it's intricately uh, entwined with the story of the airport. You had nine Western airlines that were represented in Jerusalem. The Scandinavian airline, SAS, had a representative resident in the airport. No Western airlines flew into Jerusalem airport, and we always used to think this was for political reasons, uh, because no country recognized Jordanian rule over the airport, but I found out that was not the case. Um, you know, you had VIPs coming on official visits, the Belgian royal couple, the king and queen of Belgium, when they came to visit, they used the Jerusalem airport. When the US Secretary of State, uh, John F. Dulles, uh, came to visit, he used that airport. And another American senator, Gillette, and others. When the Pope came, Paul VI, in January 1964, he came on an historic visit, he did not land in Jerusalem. He landed and then took off again from Amman, and this irked. Um, Jordanian officials, and they asked the Vatican, why don't you have your plane land in Jerusalem? And they were told it's not for political reasons, only for technical reasons. The runway is too short or too narrow. Um, so it's interesting. 
the politics behind all this, because no Arab country ever recognized Jordan's rule over the airport, but still they sent their planes to land there. Um, and I have a theory, it's also for political reasons. They wanted this foothold in the city um, and they wanted a stake in the city. So politics plays both ways. Of course, after 1967, uh, Israel's attempts to make it again into an international airport were met with, uh, with, with, it didn't work out. No country would allow its planes to land there and it was a great failure. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Yeah. Yeah, the failure of post-1967 obviously is more determined by politics than anything else. Um, you mentioned cosmopolitanism. You mentioned that Jerusalem was a cosmopolitan city. And this is the memory of a number of guests who lived in Jerusalem throughout the 50s and 60s. And they remembered this idea of a Jerusalem filled with people, not just from other Arab countries, but also coming from the West and uh, mingling with the locals and spending their money and going around the city, which is a rather different picture that you just mentioned from the contemporary, which is cosmopolitan, but up to a point, is much more homogeneous in that sense. Uh, maybe the future will hold something different, but at the moment, uh, this is Jerusalem. If, if I can interject, um, is that okay that I interject? Absolutely. Um, about the cosmopolitanism, Jordanian Jerusalem was a small and poor city of no more than 60,000 people. Most of them quite poor, even hand-to-mouth kind of poverty. At the same time, it saw much, many more tourists than the Israeli side of the city, of course. And that led to a cosmopolitan air. And I found that during my little research, there were three dailies uh, that were published in Jerusalem, in Jordanian Jerusalem, in English. Three English dailies. Today, there's not even one. There were three cinemas showing Hollywood pictures. Today, not even one. There used to be nightclubs in East Jerusalem. Alcohol was much easier to come by, uh, I guess, than it is today. 
you had all these churches and all these Western organizations. You had the YMCA, the YWCA, um, just the amount of tourists coming through, pilgrims. Uh, if we were to take into account that Jordanian Jerusalem had about 50 hotels, then it's one hotel for every 1,200 residents. If we maintain the same ratio in Jerusalem today, we would have more than 800 hotels in the city. So it goes to show just how open to the world uh, the city was. Um, there was nightlife, nightclubs, as I said. So it's, it, it is very interesting because at the same time, it was a, a small, poor, provincial backwater. But you know, at the same time, it was also quite cosmopolitan. So everything was more extreme. When it comes to provincialism, it was much more provincial than Jerusalem today. But when it comes to cosmopolitanism, again, it was much more cosmopolitan than the Jerusalem today. So it works in both directions, really. It's fascinating. I never thought about it like this. Well, it is indeed. And the more I piece together memories of people that lived around that period, you really get this, this picture. Uh, obviously, the Jordanians had their own reasons to keep Jerusalem in a certain way, because they, they had another capital, Amman, and political internal issues. And at the same time, Jerusalem was developing this uh, cosmopolitan uh, filled with culture and richness, really, of, of people moving in and out, uh, and so also contributing to the development of, of, the, of the local population, because obviously it, it's, you know, given or taken, I come and visit and I'll bring something. And, you know, that's part also of the, the economy of tourism, which brings me to your to the questions. How did you become a tourist guide? You know, I spent uh, two uh, formative years in the States as, as a young kid, and that's where I got my English. And I managed to retain my English, and until a few years ago, even part of my accent, that, that's long gone, I think, but uh, I managed to retain a vocabulary and a certain fluency. And uh, friends and family who would come to the city, I would take them around because I also had a knack for history and geography and I would explain stuff. And uh, more than one and more than two said, why don't you make this into your job? Why don't you, you know, turn this into your profession, your vocation? And I decided I might as well. So I took the Israeli Ministry of Tourism tour guide course, which was fascinating. I do it all over again with the best lecturers and, you know, tours around the country. I learned more in two years of tour guide school than I did in eight years in university. Um, I, I really learned to, to appreciate what this very small country has to offer. And I noticed that there was an inverse ratio between the size of the country and the amount of things to do and to know and to realize about this country. And every tour guide has an area or a subject that he specializes in. You cannot cover everything. Even in a country which is smaller than New Jersey, you cannot you know, control and, and, and command knowledge of every place and every issue. There's just too much. So because I live in Jerusalem and it's my city and it's my passion in a way, I, specializes, uh, I specialized in Jerusalem. And uh, when there's no COVID, when there's no Corona, um, it was, it was okay, you know, many tourists coming through. I also worked for Il Amim, which is an Israeli, a Jerusalem-based association, a political association, which, um, but what Il Amim does is to focus on Jerusalem in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, trying to make accessible 
for many people as possible, the issue of just how complicated the situation in Jerusalem is from a political standpoint. And I'm one of their veteran guides taking tours around the city, taking groups, uh, explaining about the geopolitics of the city, the situation, the separation barrier, Israeli policies regarding East Jerusalemites, their, uh, their civilian status, all these things that make Jerusalem so volatile and so problematic. Uh, so I do that as well. Um, so yeah, so that's what I told you. Jerusalem is more than my address. It's my vocation. And as tour guide, I get to guide many people around the city and I keep learning about the city, perfecting my knowledge because you always have to you know, be one step ahead with the new archaeological discoveries and, and whatnot. So it's, it's fascinating, fascinating life, I have to say. In an interview, you said, quote, mine is a Jerusalem stripped bare of cliché. I think this is an important statement because there are so many cliché and stories that don't really fit history when we talk about Jerusalem. So I was wondering, as a tourist guide, what is that you include in your narratives? What, what is that you insist or highlight with the tourists that are walking with you through the city? You know that um, about a thousand years ago, there was an Arab uh, Muslim historian and geographer who lived in the city, Al-Mukadsi, uh, meaning the Jerusalemite. I'm not sure about his real name. And he gave the most apt description, one-liner, for Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem is a bowl of gold filled with scorpions. And that is so true. And that holds true until today. This city is a, a, a cauldron of different religions and, 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 and well, different ethnic groups and religious backgrounds. And the one thing that they have in common, all of them, is, is mutual hatred and resentment. And that makes Jerusalem a, a fascinating but very, very difficult place to, to live in and to understand and to make sense of. If you were to ask me 20 years ago about my relation to the city, 20, 30 years ago, I would tell you I love it. It's the greatest city in the world. But my love relations with the city uh, soured over time. Um, it became love and hate, a love-hate relationship, and sometimes only a hate-hate relationship. It, it, I don't love the city uh, the way I used to. I'm much more cynical about it, much more cynical. That would be the word. Um, sometimes I lose hope when I see the poverty, when I see how decrepit the city has become, when I see the extreme politics of both Jews and Arabs, when I see the future and I think it's very bleak indeed. Um, and I'm not trying to make a rosy picture for tourists. When I take them around, I explain about the archaeology and all that, all the, the banal but fascinating facets of the city. But at the same time, I try to draw their attention to the current situation and to just how much of a tinderbox the city has become. And I'm not masking this. And I'm not masking my cynicism and sometimes my sense of despair and hopelessness regarding the city. I, I, I hope I'm not ruining your podcasts by, you know, raining on your parade, but truth has to be told. It's, it's, it's not Chicago. Uh, it's a very difficult place indeed. And this is something you have to convey to your visitors. Otherwise, you're just not, I think, you're not doing your job properly. 
they have to leave the city, not only knowing about the Western Wall and the archaeology of the city of David and, you know, details about the Dome of the Rock, but also about what simmers beneath the surface and what makes the city so explosive. They should know about this. They should be aware about this. No visit to Jerusalem would be complete without this. And yet you may have colleagues, and I know that for personal experience, who tend to paint different pictures. And uh, I know this is maybe may political in a sense, but uh, a few times I took tours around the city, much more interested in the narratives, not in you know seeing places, but uh, as an historian, I was interested in how certain locations were discussed, described, how the history of some places. And sometimes I had the feeling that, you know, some organizations, uh, mainly like official organizations, they want to paint a picture of Jerusalem so that then the tourists go home, they can say, oh, I, I've been to this greatest place and the city is great and everything is fine, but it's not, and it's not true. I mean, there's a lot of problems as you're lighted. And, and, I, and I had the sense that sometimes there, there is a way the tourist guides adopt to hide what you've just been describing, the poverty, uh, the problems, uh, the divisions. Uh, so I actually cherish the fact that you are honest. And I think this is exactly the point also of this podcast to show Jerusalem how it is with the pros and cons. I mean, there's no city in the world without problems and it would be a mistake just to paint this heavenly Jerusalem because it doesn't really exist in reality. You know, it's, it's, interesting, it's very interesting what you say because in 2006, I was very fortunate to have published an article called uh, Politically Oriented Tourism in Jerusalem in Tourist Studies, uh, I think University of Liverpool. And um, it's online, you can find it, I guess, there. Um, Modesty aside, it was almost a groundbreaking article uh, because no one ever came up with this term, politically oriented tourism, uh, at least not regarding Jerusalem. And I, what I managed to, I hope I managed to convey is that most tourists are not interested. Most tourists are everyday run-of-the-mill tourists and, and package groups. They want to come and see the highlights and go home and they'll be able to tell people, I've been to Jerusalem, I've been to the Western Wall and, and all that, it was great went to the bazaar, I haggled, but there's a growing segment of visitors, um, Jews and non-Jews, who come not despite of the political problems, but because of them. They're drawn like a moth to the flame, and they come either to show support for the Jews or for the Palestinians, or just because they want to satiate their, uh, their, their to, to quench their thirst for knowledge and to satiate their curiosity. About, um, about the political tensions in the city. It draws people. You have the same kind of tourism to uh, Belfast, uh, Sarajevo, Berlin before the wall came down. So it's nothing that we came up with, but I think we perfected the art of political tourism. And you have more and more people coming to, to uh, like on our tours of Iramim. Um, you know, at least one or two buses every week, every weekend, they, we go and discuss things that the normal tourist is not interested in seeing, even tries to avoid. So it, it, it's fascinating the way the politics became uh, a tourism segment in its own right in this city, in this country in general, but especially in Jerusalem, which is the center point, the, the center of the fury, uh, because Jerusalem is a microcosm uh, of Israel. And uh, that's the bad news that in the future, 
all of Israel would look like Jerusalem. I think it's very bad news. That's, that's where we're heading. So if you want to understand Israel outside the bubble, which is called Tel Aviv, if you really want to understand what makes Israel tick um, and even tick like a, like a bomb, come to Jerusalem. And we'll take you around and show you the relations between the ultra-Orthodox and the secular, between the Jews and the Arabs. Uh, fascinating, disheartening, but important to, to see and to, to understand. Let me ask you something personal. You just highlighted a lot of the challenges being a tourist guide in Jerusalem. What are the satisfactions? What are the, the positive sides of being a tourist guide in Jerusalem? I'm, I'm glad you asked me this because there are positive sides. Um, first of all, the great pride, I, despite everything I said, I take great pride in the fact that I am a Jerusalemite, that I was born here, that I was raised and had most of my higher education in the city. I'm proud to live in the same city where the Dome of the Rock stands, the Temple Mount, and the great archeological discoveries, one of the oldest cities in the world, one of the most venerated. I'm not a religious man at all. And they asked me, how can you guide in a city which is based on religion when you yourself, are, uh, you know, you're a militant atheist? I tell people it only makes it easier because I treat all religions with the same amount of skepticism and cynicism. I'm not uh, bigoted to one or other religion or you know, religious notion or sect. I treat them all with the same I don't want to say contempt, of course, but um, cynicism and a sense of uh, criticism. That's the word I was looking for, criticism. So it makes it easier to, to, to guide people through the city and to look at all with a critical eye. And I'm very proud to have the Dome of the Rock in this city. I enjoy every time I go on Temple Mount, despite the tension, which is you know, tangible. You can feel it in your mouth when you go on Temple Mount. But to point to the Dome of the Rock and to see the people melt in front of this magnificent monument and to explain the, the engineering of it and the history behind it, um, it, it gives me great pleasure and pride and joy. And then there are the smaller things, the, the food scene that we have in the city, the street food. This is one of the most delicious cities in the world. And I'm telling you this, and you come from Chicago, I mean, but still Jerusalem is a great culinary a city for culinary delights, uh, mostly Arab, Palestinian food, but also on the Jewish side, um, great place to, to uh, wine and dine and, 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 and to eat uh, from the street, great street food, ethnical food. Um, the versatility of the city, um, the, the fact that you can walk a few hundred meters in every direction and you're like in a different city altogether. The vast difference between the different neighborhoods, sometimes adjacent neighborhoods, makes for a, a fascinating tapestry or mosaic that I don't think is replicated in many cities in the world, including Chicago. So all this gives me a great pride and joy in this city. And thank you for bringing this up because I usually, I forget how proud I should be. You know, I, I drown in my own cynicism and despair. So it's very nice that you brought it up. Thank you. I must say that I'm a cynical historian too. I guess it grows with the years, the more you work on history, the more cynical you become. So I have sometimes to tell myself, oh, there must be something positive. And when I found it, I feel like much more relaxed and uh, happy for what I'm, I'm doing. I want to ask you something. 
you just mentioned that, you know, the different neighborhoods in different areas of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is filled with uh, borders. Some are international. They do exist as a line. Some other are natural hills, you know, different sides of a city. And others are understood, meaning that, you know, if you're walking into that neighborhood is an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. If you work in another one, it's a different kind of neighborhood with different rules and regulations. How do you negotiate this when you go around the city? How do you cross those borders? How do you feel crossing those borders? Well, allow me to to quote Yogi Berra, who said that in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. So in theory, Jerusalem is an open city, and you can go almost anywhere you want, unhindered, Uh, go into any neighborhood. It's an open, democratic, egalitarian city. That's in theory. In practice, there are borders. Some of them are physical borders, like the separation barrier, which not many people know, not only encompasses the city north, east, and south, it sometimes enters the city, and a few Palestinian neighborhoods are left on the other side of it. In theory, you can go there. In practice, it's not that easy. Uh, sometimes there are other physical barriers, like on, on holiday eves and Saturday nights or Friday nights, um, you can't go with your car down certain streets into religious neighborhoods. So these are physical barriers. Other barriers are barriers of fear, resent, and indifference. Uh, many people wouldn't go to places which are fascinating simply because they're too scared. Sometimes their fear is justified, mostly it is not. Sometimes they don't go because of hatred. And sometimes they don't go places because they don't even know these places exist. And I'm talking about great locations around the city, especially around the old city. In East Jerusalem, many Israeli Jews would not go there, would not venture into these areas, although they are perfectly safe, just because they know they are unwanted. And that that breaks my heart. That really breaks my heart. So there are borders. The borders are especially between the Jews and the Arabs, but also between Jews and Jews. And I had the great misfortune uh, a couple of times of taking uh, visitors, uh, Israelis and otherwise, to the very ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods, and we were pelted with rubbish or slander. You know, sometimes words and sometimes uh, beer, not beer cans, but Coke cans were, were hurled at us. So these things do happen. It's a city where, much like Chicago, you know where you should go, and you definitely know where you should not go. So it's, it's, it's always like we have this uh, mental GPS in our head, and every Jerusalemite knows where he can go safely and where he would never venture into. And in that sense, Jerusalem, you know, which physically is, is the biggest city in the country, uh, both in size and in population, but when you think about it, it's a collection of much smaller cities that you know, you keep to your city and you hardly venture into the surrounding cities or towns around it because you know it might end badly. Yeah. As a naive researcher in 2004, when I started my work in, when I started my work on Jerusalem, I had to learn the geography. I, I understood that there was a geography, but at times I did mistakes. Obviously, I was not born there. I wasn't exactly aware of everything. But in time, I learned that, and and I I came to understand what it means to be a foreigner, white, male, 
Christian mumbling both languages or try to get away with things. And then I learned places that I could go, places that I should have avoided. And if no, accidentally I bump into, try to yep. get my, my way out with some story justification. And, um, and you're right. You know, every, every great city has this issue of uh, mental maps. And research was done in New York, LA, I'm, I'm sure in Chicago as well, as, as well as European cities, uh, Southeast Asian cities, people were asked to draw, you know, residents of a certain city were asked to draw maps and they came up with maps which reflect the places they feel comfortable going to, places they know about. And these are vastly different maps, you know, portraying what is essentially the same city. So, uh, of course, if you give a Palestinian uh, teenager um, a task to draw a map of the city, it would be very different to a map drawn uh, by an ultra-Orthodox or by a secular Jew. Uh, men and women would draw different maps. Uh, the secular and the religious would draw different maps altogether, the rich and the poor. That goes for every complex city in the world, but especially so in Jerusalem, I guess. We're reaching the end of the uh, interview, and I, I want to just come to full circle. So I want to ask you something related to the way you started talking about Jerusalem as your address. You're a tourist guide, so you have your own favorite spots, I'm pretty sure. But that brain, if you were to choose two spots in Jerusalem that you feel like these are your favorite places where you want to go alone, just to take a look at the view, to breathe, to relax, where would you go? That is a complicated question because the list is, is, is rather long. Um, I do, it sounds banal, but it's true. I admire Temple Mount or the Haram Sharif for its history, for its architecture, for its splendid, splendid architecture. Um, and I take great pride in, in, in that place. And I love guiding there and I love walking around. I'll never go there alone. I mean, I'll go there with tourists. And when I do, I just feel elated showing and explaining the Mamluk architecture and uh, the splendor of the place. Another place I like very much is the plaza just outside the Damascus Gate. Uh, a very problematic place. It saw many terror attacks in recent years, uh, some deaths, Jews and Arab deaths. It's not, it's a tense place today. But at the same time, it's the interface between the old city and the new city. And it's a bottleneck. So many people would come through, Jews and Arabs. Um, and just, you know, people watching, which is my favorite sport. Actually, the only sport I'm good at. Uh, that's the best place in the city to go people watching. Just sit there with something to eat, something you just bought from one of the vendors inside the old city. And just watch the, the gate itself. Just watching the gate is a splendid experience because you can just sit there and look at it the way you, you know, look at TV. But to see all this human traffic coming through, uh, the Jews and the Arabs, the young and the old, um, it's a fascinating place indeed. Other favorite spots in the city, I guess, you know, um, well, the Mahni Yehuda market is the best market in the country you know, hectic place, uh, very colorful, very delicious place indeed. Other great neighborhoods, uh, Baka is a beautiful neighborhood with a very, um, well, 
painful history, but great architecture and great by Bethlehem Road, all that area. So there's quite a few places. So it's important to, uh, it's difficult to, to choose a few, but I, I gave you just a few, yeah. You mentioned eating, so I must ask. Jerusalem food is very famous for being stuffed. What is your culinary experience of Jerusalem? What is your favorite Jerusalem dish, if you have any? Well, again, the, the list is endless because I'm a foodie and I, uh, I eat a lot. And I uh, have the good fortune of eating a lot in the different eateries in the old city because I guide there. So it's, that's my excuse. Uh, you know, it's part of the job. Uh, so I have to eat another hummus, another. But there's one hole in the wall. You know, these holes in the walls are the best. And there's one hole in the wall. I don't think it even has a name. And it sells, it dishes out the entrails. Uh, I'm talking about hearts, spleens, livers, brain, stuffed inside a pita bread with salad and some hot sauce. Um, not the most healthy food in the world, I know, but delicious. And uh, to see the shock on the face of my tourists when I hand them you know, a sheep brain or a heart or a spleen or liver, they look shocked, but then they taste and it's really very good. The hummus next door is one of the best in the city. But you know, every Jerusalemite, every Israeli will tell you that's the best hummus I know. And uh, he would, you know, diss out all the other hummus places. So I can, um, maybe I can end this interview with a little joke about Jerusalem hummus. Um, you know, there used to be one little alley in the old city which had four hummus places. And one had a big sign out saying the best hummus in the, in, in the city. And the others had uh, a much bigger sign with flashing lights and said the best hummus in the country. And the, uh, the third one had, had even a bigger sign outside with many flashing lights, the best hummus in the world. And the fourth one had a small sign on the door saying the best hummus on the street. This was uh, Eldad Brain, a recent graduate from the University of Haifa with a PhD on the geopolitics of Jerusalem in the 20th century and a tourist guide of Jerusalem. Eldad, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Pleasure. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.